Welcome to the Global Band Room, a podcast about bands and musicians across the world. My name is Keith Kelly, and I'm a band director from the west coast of Ireland. Each episode, I sit down with musicians to talk about their stories and bands and how they're making an impact in their communities. Before we start, you can find out more about the podcast and the people and stories that we feature over at globalbandroom.com. And you can also find us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom. All of the Global Bandroom podcasts are brought to you by Kaleidoscope Adventures. Find out how you can travel beyond expectations at mykatrip.com. Now on with the show. So I am delighted to welcome uh, a friend, Philip Spark, to the podcast to launch our season, um, our third season of, of this podcast. Um, Philip, how are you? It's, I'm delighted to, to, to be able to talk to you again. I'm fine, thanks, Keith. Yes, avoiding uh, COVID so far, fingers crossed. And um, yeah, life goes on as normal fairly, fairly much. So let's let's start there. Um, how are things uh, in London? How are things in England? Um, are we looking at sort of a normal band year um, uh, over the over the coming coming months? Well, it it seems to be. I mean, the bands are now able to to rehearse as as per normal, and brass band contests are now going ahead. Um, concerts are going ahead. I'm I'm, I'm not sure whether. Um, we've lifted restrictions too early. I have a horrible feeling that um, come the autumn and winter, there's going to be another stuff and we might go backwards again. But fingers crossed at the moment, largely because we've got so many people vaccinated here, things seem to be going going on fairly well. Yeah, I think I think that's the hope everywhere, and it's it's great to see some of the pictures and recordings of brass bands back in their in their band rooms. I mean, it's it's something that I think our American friends probably don't realize is just how small some of these band rooms that the brass bands rehearse in, including some of the the top well renowned brass bands. Most I mean, most of the big ones, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and ventilation and spacing just isn't an option for some of these <laughs> some of these groups. <laughs> no, quite absolutely. <laughs> so so Philip. I know a lot of people know your music, but um, you don't do a huge amount of interviews, um, and I don't think many people know your sort of your backstory and your your how you came to to composition and, and to the brass band world. Can I talk a little to a little bit about uh, about your backstory? Like when when did you um, how and when did you start your musical journey? Um, it goes back to a very specific uh, moment when. Um... Uh, an older relative of ours, I think he's my great uncle, I think he was, um, donated for some reason a piano to my parents. I don't know why. And this piano appeared, and I, I guess I would have been 11 or 12. And, uh, and I started playing around with it. I didn't take any lessons at that stage. Um, but I, I, I remember starting to invent tunes right stuff on the on the piano so that, that was the start of it i had i had the usual school education but nothing nothing extra do you, do you think Philip, sorry do you do you think if you had have gone straight into piano lessons that that invention and that creativity might have been stifled uh, at that beginning um because you weren't going for for lessons and, and going a formal route but it do you think that maybe you you got more comfortable with creating your own tunes at an early age? I suppose so, because if I was having lessons, I'd have spent my piano time practicing pieces, I suppose, and not, not playing around so much. I guess that's probably a good point. I hadn't thought of that, yeah. I think there's probably, you know, I, I think we've got better with teaching in recent years, and you see it being, uh, you see it part of curriculum uh, at a very early age now, this idea that kids should be allowed to try and create a little bit more and it's just it's interesting to hear how you didn't go for those lessons and and yeah it 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 started you in a in a way in 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 this idea of composition were you were you creating tunes then i mean you know we'll we'll come to some of your early work soon um but were you creating and writing down any of any music in your early years oh i was writing symphonies yeah (laughs) 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 very 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 grand um ambitions i think at that stage not that i knew what i was doing really um i I still remember some of the early things but they were they are sadly and gladly lost now (laughs) 
most of them disappeared. But it was all all done through, I mean, no formal harmony training or anything. It was all done through, I guess, instinct and what I, what I'd already heard. My 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 father was a great um, lover of classical music, so we had a we had an old seventy eight um, gramophone, and I heard a few early pieces there, but I've I've no idea where the where the the bug came from, so to speak. I don't know. So, so who are you writing these for in your mind? Like you were, you were playing piano. Were you part of any ensembles? I mean, you're, no. you're synonymous with brass band now. Was there a brass band in your life? Not at all. No, not at all. Um, I, I wasn't writing them for anyone. I mean, I didn't expect them to be <laughs> performers, as far as I remember. I just, maybe I, I, I it didn't even have the connection between writing music and having it played at that stage. I, I don't know. I can't remember. It's a very long time ago. <laughs> well, you were growing up in London. I mean, London is sort of synonymous with, you know, military bands and uh, and, and uh, the band the band world kind of grew from there. I mean, you know, it, and, and, and emigrated in ways to North America and so on. Um, but you weren't really part of the band scene as such in those years. Where, when did that happen? Well, it, it, again, it's a very specific, specific and... Um, lucky moment really i was i was initially a violin violin player and i played in um local youth orchestras and i didn't get on well with the, the violin uh, as i didn't get on well with the piano because i have a left hand right hand disconnect that's my excuse <laughs> it would be adhd or something these days um and i mean this is all bizarre i i had a guitar I don't know where that came from and I swapped it with someone at school who had a trumpet and my rationale and, I, and this, is, this was definite my rationale was the trumpet only needed one hand to play it <laughs> therefore, I, therefore I thought it would be a good idea um, <laughs> um, hence my introduction to, to brass I knew nothing about brass at that stage I knew nothing about bands at all um, until I was playing in an amateur Gilbert and Sullivan produ uh, production, and playing in the pit, playing trumpet in the pit. And the guy who was a drummer was um, a drummer with a Hendon band, Hendon and Brass Band. And he said, come along and have a listen to see what we do. And I, I don't know how old I was, but it was, I was at least 20. So I, had, I hadn't a notion of what a brass band or a wind band was till I was about 20. And I went along and heard a brass band, and um, I actually arranged a piece that I'd already written for them, and they played it through for me. And in terms of wind band, um, I was playing in, in the local youth orchestra in, in, in London, and the, uh, one of the horn players there was already at the Royal College of Music. And he took a lot, a lot of us along to a concert of the wind band there and that was the first time I'd ever heard a wind band and I was completely blown away by it so I was, really was a late comer into into bands generally but and, and it was all just just a, just a question of serendipity and luck that I knew anything about them at all and like growing up in London where you're you must have been aware of military bands uh, at the very least uh, you know we call them wind bands now but like military band is what even even here in Ireland, we would have called a wind band for such a long I, time. Yeah, I'd have watched Trooping the Colour, and that's, pro that's probably the closest I got, whether I realised this was a was a, also a, an amateur community thing as well. I, I don't think I knew at that stage. One of the most exciting parts of any journey is the anticipation of the adventure to come. Planning your route, investigating the attractions, and researching the local culture. But sometimes, as music educators, it's easy to get swept up in the mountain of work it takes to bring your students on that next band trip. And that joy and anticipation can be lost, or worse, can turn into dread. With over 28 years of experience, Kaleidoscope Adventures has a world-class team of travel and performance experts ready to make this process not just easy, but exciting, leaving you and your students to continue doing what you do best, and looking forward to an experience of a lifetime. When you're ready to travel beyond expectations, contact Kaleidoscope Adventures at 
mykatrip.com. So, so you're studying trumpet and composition already in the Royal College of Music before your introduction to to brass and wind band, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yep. 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 So, yeah. what what was it that that in, that that inspired you to uh, study music at a higher level? Um, you know, you're playing trumpet, you're playing piano. Uh, what was it? What was your what was your goal at that point? Do you think? I'm pretty sure I didn't have one. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, certainly it wasn't to become a composer. Absolutely not. was a thing in terms of. Um, a career in my mind, I don't think so. Um, but again, luck upon luck upon luck, the, the wind band at the Royal College was was formed by um, Philip Cannon, who happened to be my composition tutor. And it was formed purely because the, there are a large number of wind players who couldn't get into the orchestras. There were two or three orchestras there. Um, so they started, they started a wind band um, just for a an ensemble for all these wind players to play. And I, I played in that for a bit and, and wrote, I think, two pieces for them, both of which they played, purely because my composition professor was, was conducting it. Again, just a, another lucky link, really. So one of, one of the pieces, one of the first pieces that I became aware of your, your music, uh, I was 12 or 13 years of age, and the band that I was playing in, which I've had you in to conduct since, and actually you conducted this piece, um, the Artane Band entered its first competition. And uh, the test piece that year was Concert Prelude. And it's one of the like, first serious pieces of music that I remember playing. Until then, it was like, you know, Disney highlights and uh, Best of oh, the yeah, Way yeah. And, and that, sort of, that yeah. sort of thing. But Concert Prelude was like one of the first real sort of um band pieces that i remember playing and ironically it's one of the first pieces that you actually published um uh, yeah. i know it's very popular here and 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 in the uk is it a piece that has sort of stood with you and is it a piece that still performs a lot do you know yes i mean uh, uh, i mean it's quite a in terms of my talent sort of side it's quite a simple simple piece but that was again um um, came about through through luck and through chance. Um, the publisher asked Smith and Company, uh, which was run by Jeffrey Brand in those days, um, put a notice up on the student notice board at uh, the Royal College saying, we're looking for new composers for Brass Band. So I went along to see them and they, they played me a piece by Eddie called, um, Eddie Gregson called Prelude for an Occasion and said, can you write something like that? So I went away and came back with Concert Prelude and they, they fortunately, and luckily for me, accepted that and published it. So that was the, the first brass band piece I was, I had published. I had a, I actually had a wind band piece published before that. Um, the, the first piece I wrote for the college band was called Gaudium. And Booty and Hawks accepted that. Bizarrely, rather bizarrely, I don't think they ever sold any of it. Um, but they it was, had it; they had it fully engraved. Must have cost them a fortune. Fully engraved, and that was published. And it was in their catalogue for I think about three weeks or something. <laughs> <laughs> but I still have a copy of this. So that was the first Windland piece. In fact, before my first prospect. O- original copies of that piece must uh, must fetch a fortune now at this stage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's in, it was in the days before computers and stuff, so that it was actually literally in, engraved, you know, wow. copper plate engraving. So it was a big deal for, you know, big deal for publishers like that. So they must, have, they must have printed more than a half a dozen. But they must be around somewhere. I've got one. <laughs> well, you know, write in info at globalbandroom.com if anyone has a, <laughs> has, a, has a version of this that we can see it and, and get it into a museum. Um, Antics, so- Antics Roadshow is coming my way. <laughs> <laughs> so at this point, Philip, um, were, you, were you set on, on, on composing for band at that point? Um, once you had these two pieces published, like, had, had you got a sense that this was the direction that your career was gonna, going to go? Well, I, I, I found out quite quickly that um, that 
in, in both genres, in, in, in brass band and wind band, there was this great appetite for new pieces, um, which I don't think the orchestral world, world had, because obviously that their, their repertoire is so great and goes back such a long way, so many great composers, that there was, there was, there was more of a, of a um, sense that they played established repertoire rather than looking for, for new pieces, particularly in, in, in the lighter style. Um, so I found this, there's a great appetite for new pieces for brass band, which is, you know, as a composer is, is very attractive. And that's, that's really why I went off in that direction. I think. Yeah, I think that the, the band scene, particularly in North America as well, has this culture of, of uh, commissioning um, that seems to be missing um, from, from other parts of our uh, musical world sometimes. There's just a huge amount of commissioning. It's, it's something that, that schools and colleges seem to take great pride in. Um, yeah. And I know uh, <laughs> recently I had the uh, pleasure, privilege, curse of working on your website for you. Um, and it's not until you work on someone's website that you realize just how prolific that composer is when you have to create a web page for every piece that they've, they've written. Right. Um, right. You are yeah. incredibly prolific. You write a huge amount of music. How do you stay so um, motivated and, and stay so um, efficient with how you write music and still create um, amazing works? If I do say so. <laughs> well, thank you. Uh, I, I, and the answer is I don't. I don't know. Um, I, I still don't know how it works exactly. And it may not be a surprise to you that composers very rarely talk to each other about the, the, the process. So I don't know. In comparison, whether I'm particularly quick or slow, or I don't know. I don't know. So it. it just happens and I'm very grateful for that and if it's if it happens quickly then then great um, at the moment I'm definitely definitely slowing down and, and deliberately so um, for various reasons um, but, but to answer your question I don't, I don't know the answer to that I'm, I'm my, my theory is that anyone can compose Absolutely anyone, because it's just a question of starting with one note and, and then writing another note. It's just a question of how quickly you can do it, whether it makes it worthwhile doing. And um, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I can do it at a rate that means I can do it professionally. When when starting a, a piece of music, Philip, I think you, you're, I, I, if you don't mind me saying so, I think you're synonymous with melody. Um, is, is do you think in terms of melody um, when starting a, a new piece of music? Is that the starting point for for a new piece of music? Do you think? Um, I guess generally yes. Um, and people often ask me which comes first, uh, the, the 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 form of the piece, shape of the piece, um, the textures of the piece, the melody. And and it can be anything. It can be it can be a harmonic sequence. It can be a melodic sequence. It can be purely um, instrumental color. So so pieces vary from piece to piece. But I think generally melody would be would be the way I I make music last more than a few seconds. I mean, it's the only way I can do it is to write about it. I can't do it with with the abstract uh, um, sort of modern trait of, of using purely color and effect. I, I can't make that work. So melody is, is the, the only resource I have to make a piece last more than a minute. Tell me, is there, is there any piece that, that sticks out to you um, uh, where the process seemed to flow? Like you didn't have to work hard. This, this was just, it was just coming from, from within you. Is there, is there any piece in particular that you just remember? It just happened. This is, this is going to sound awfully, um, awfully big headed of me, um, but it's not meant to be. Two, two, I remember two things, two things that happened. 
normally, normally it is a question, you're right, of, I always start at the beginning of the piece, I, I, never, I never really plan it. Um, because I find if I, if I do try and achieve something, I don't get there. And I'd much rather let the music make its own um, sense or direction. And this is going to sound ridiculous, but it is, it is, it is true. I wrote a piece very early on called Barn Dance and Cowboy Hymn. <laughs> Please believe me. <laughs> the, the whole piece came to me sitting at a set of traffic lights on the way home from work. And I don't know how it, I don't know how it happened, but I went home and wrote the whole piece. That, I mean, it, it sounds ridiculous, but it, it's genuine. I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to one side because it does sound stupid, but it actually happened. The piece I remember, composition is generally a question of balancing intellect and emotion. So, so is, is the piece making sense intellectually? Has it got uh, musical uh, credibility? And is it achieving something emotionally? Um, the one piece where I cut that in half and only used emotion and no intellect was Music of the Spheres. And I wrote it originally as a brass band piece, you know, as you know. Um, and I didn't at any point during that piece stop and think what I was doing. And at the end of it, and this is totally genuine, I didn't know whether the piece was total garbage or whether it worked. And it was a very strange, very strange feeling. Um, and you hear, you hear lots of stories about um, Berlioz in particular, writing under the effect of opium, this sort of thing, um, where presumably the, the intellect is, is not part of the process. Um, and that's the only time that's ever happened to me. And, and I, I did it deliberately because I wanted to achieve something different. And I, I, was, I must say, I'm, I'm very pleased with the result because it, it is more than anything that piece is an emotional, emotional journey. I, I, I say I wish I could do it again, but it was, it's too much of a risk really to, to go through the whole, writing, writing a whole piece and not knowing whether that's, whether it's garbage or good or not. Um, so that piece is the one piece that really flowed nonstop without me stopping to think, is what I'm doing sensible? Is what I'm doing making sense? Was that a deliberate experiment, Philip? Um, and yeah. I asked that question because you seem to be quite reflective in, um, uh, you know, in, in thinking about how we think. You know, you're talking about the intellect, you're talking about uh, emotion. Um, you know, you, you've got the piece about the noble truths. Um, you know, is, is meditation, is, 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 do you think, you think about uh, things like that? It, this seems like a, 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 you say it's a deliberate experiment. Um, why? Um, I've been convinced, and I've, I've spoken to other composers about this and had it confirmed, um, that the education I had at school, musically, O-level, and A level. Um, and while I, <laughs> this is a bizarre dichotomy, I feel that I've spent my time since then trying to get rid of the disciplines I learned at school. In other words, the harmonic disciplines, formal disciplines. Um, and I think, I, I'm not saying they've held me back, but I think I've never actually got rid of the, the basic idea of harmony and how harmony works, how pieces work in terms of their overall shape. And I often wonder if I, if I hadn't had that formal education, like I think Berlioz, I think, like Paul McCartney, for example, I had no idea what he was doing in terms of theory. I often wonder whether my um, journey would have taken a different direction. On the other hand, on the other hand, 
Um, I think the lack of that discipline these days in education, in terms of formal theory learning, yeah, I, mean, it, I go back to the days of GCSE, I'm that old. We had to harmonize Bach chorales in the exam. And I don't have much connection with music education these days, but I've, I'm pretty sure that the, um, both at A-level and other levels in, in the UK particularly, I don't think any formal harmonization takes place at all. And I see this reflected in younger composers' works, that uh, their harmonic language is either very poor or very restricted. And I think it's necessary to learn to, to learn how music works mechanically. So you can either use that as I have, or you can decide not to use it, but you you have to know how it works before you can decide whether you're going to go on a, on a very avant-garde um, course or whether you're going to stick with, with tonal music. So that, that is a, a dichotomy for me, but I think I've spent my time wondering if I hadn't had that formal education, whether I'd have gone anywhere at all in composition. Yeah, I, I think you see this same concern that you're expressing here uh, reflected not just in, in band or classical or orchestral music. You see it in pop music too. Um, Rick Beto, the, the, the uh, producer, uh, talks about, you know, reviews modern pop music using incredibly simplistic overly simplistic harmonic language yeah. um, compared yeah. to compared to even the 80s uh, 70s and 80s were in pop music that at the time would have been looked down on from the classical music community as being overly simplistic uh, but actually it was using a lot more interesting uh, harmonic uh, lines and passages compared to these like two or three chord repetitive a- tracks that are that are used and I, I try not to be you know, or curmudgeon about this, but but pop music now just is is way more overly simplistic than it may have been in in, in the in the seventies or eighties even. And um, that that seems to be a very quick journey that we've come to to um to to where we are now. And it, it's interesting to see that you you find that this yeah. might be the case uh, with bands. I I yes, I remember a, a conversation I had when I was working at Studio Music. Um, as well as publishing all the all the test pieces and things, we 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 published this, and I'm talking 80s now. Publishers were very keen. You had a hit hit in the number one in the in the hit parade. Um, let's do a brass band arrangement of it. Yeah, let's do that. And it happened all the time. Every every popular song was was arranged for brass band. It got to a stage where we had. People like EMI coming to us and saying, we've had this huge hit. Can you do a brass band arrangement? And the answer is no. It, it couldn't work. There was no, there was no harmonic structure. There was barely a melody. It's often just, just one note against harmony. And it just wouldn't work instrumentally. So that's, that's backing up the point you made. I hadn't, I hadn't put the two together. You're quite right. So, I mean, it's a, it's a good uh, point to then start to talk a little bit about um, a conversation that we've had um, uh, when, when you were over here conducting the Irish Symphonic Wind Orchestra. One of the goals of the Wind Orchestra here in Ireland was always to perform, um, you know, the musicians, for anyone that doesn't know this ensemble, we meet three or four times a year. The musicians are uh, performers from all the community bands around, around Ireland. Um, and we try to play very high level music, but music that the performers really want to play. You know, and and your music has always been at the top of that list. Um, uh, same with uh, Julie Giroux and, and her music. This music that um, the musicians really enjoy playing. One of the criticisms that has been made of of your music, in a very friendly way, mind you, it's always by people that say we love Philip's music, and and but then they have this this criticism is that it's too accessible. I mean, I know you've you've um, addressed this. You've you've talked about it a little bit about it in the past um, with me and with others. Is it a criticism that bugs you? Is it a criticism that is you know doesn't does, you don't worry about it at all? And what are your thoughts on on sort of uh, the general criticism that music can be too accessible? 
sometimes because um, mind you before you answer that question if you're a clarinet player playing some of your pieces um whether it's dance movements or whether it's the uh, year of the dragon they're not that accessible for the musicians sometimes <laughs> um i'll start with a quote from pdq bach um i can't remember the name of him he's an american musicologist uh, peter shickley peter shickley look him up and he invented this um, 24th Bach son, PDQ Bach, and, and put on several concerts, and they're hilarious. And he introduces, introduces one piece um, by saying, this is PDQ Bach's most intense, obscure, dramatic, evil piece, and therefore his greatest. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I just don't understand don't understand that as a even a friendly criticism. Um, I, I said earlier, the only way I can make music work is melodically because that is what span the melody is what spans time. Um, more important than that, I, I think, I've always regarded band, brass and wind, as a, as a rehearsal medium, not a performance medium. A bit like string quartet. It's it's there for the benefit of the players. Um, so the players have to enjoy what they're doing. And I know I've spoken to thousands and thousands of players that playing something that has sustained melody and comprehensible harmony um, is what they enjoy best. There's, there's little point in, in, in conductors trying to keep a band going with music that the players don't enjoy playing because they, they just don't come. They don't turn up. Um, that's not why I write the way I do. The way I, the way I, I write the way I do because that's the only way I can write. It just happens to be that it's, I think it's found a niche in, in band terms in that the sort of music I, I write is enjoyable to play. Um, I hope there's something more to it than that, um, in that, that there is some, some depth and some quality to it. I always try to ensure there is. The example, example I use um, is Kenny Rogers. I cannot abide the music of Kenny Rogers. I find it saccharine and simple, oversimplified emotionally. But of course, millions and millions and millions of people like it. How do you, how do you compare my music with his? You can't, you can't do it. Um, and to say that because millions of people like Kenny Rogers is to say that those people have no taste in music that's that's a ridiculously arrogant thing to say um i'm i'm more and more and we'll talk about this later i think when we can talk about possibly talk about is that for me all music fits into a fits into a spectrum and where it sits on that in terms of art music or folk music or, uh, pop music rock music um it's only along a line. And to try and claim that because a because piece is inaccessible makes it a better piece. I mean, I'm prepared to be persuaded by that argument, but I can't <laughs> see how it works myself. So um, is, it, is it attractive? I hope so. I, I wouldn't want to try and write unattractive music. Um, and if people think that being accessible is a is a fault, then mea culpa. Well, it seems to be a criticism by uh, more by conductors and may, maybe by musicologists or composers uh, themselves, maybe sometimes rather than the musicians, which I which I always find fascinating. I mean, there's very few musicians when I say I know all conductors and composers are probably some sort of musician themselves. Uh, but but the people that are playing in band regularly, regularly playing your music. 
love playing your music. Um, and it just it's it's a very it's a very striking sort of um, uh, observation to make. It's like very rarely that criticism very rarely comes from the people that have to play the music. <laughs> yeah, and and um, I say I think that's just purely a, a question of serendipity that the, the sort of music I, I can write is the sort of music that players like. But it's also a question of me over the last um, 40, 50 years trying to make sure that the, the, the way I score it makes it a challenge, yes, maybe to play, but also a challenge that has that has a result. I spent a lot of time on a particular brass band test piece, no names, no pack drill. It was extremely complex. Um, and we worked very hard at it and we got it right. But we found out that having spent two or three months working at this piece, the end result wasn't worth it uh, for whatever reason. It's a very cleverly put together piece, cleverly scored, but all those intricacies didn't add up to a, um, a satisfying musical experience. Um, so uh, it's a question, a question also of me trying to learn how to write for, for this instrument, that instrument, so that even though it might be difficult, and a lot of it, that's another criticism I get, is your music is too difficult. I always try and make it as easy as, easy as possible, but it might, it might be difficult music, um, is to try and make it so that if there is a challenge, then once you overcome that challenge, it, it's, it's worth, you know, it's, it's a journey worth doing. Again, it's not something I try and I try and put into the music. It's just a result of how the music turns out. Well, let's talk about that then. That challenge uh, with with some of your music. Uh, you write music for brass band competition um, quite regularly as uh, as part of as part of your your repertoire. Um, for anyone, for any of our uh, maybe North American. Um, uh, musicians or band people that are that are listening um the the brass band competition circuit is it, it, in the uk is is like nothing else in the, and, and in parts of europe as well is like nothing else in the world competition is what drives this excellence between among some of these top brass bands in the world when when you're writing for a competition like this is the goal to write something that's as challenging as possible. Um, what, what, what do you approach writing a piece for competition differently than maybe a, a, a regular commission? It depends, and this is getting a bit sort of um, um, nerdy now. It depends whether it's a piece written for a particular band to play or whether it's a piece written for all the bands to play. Okay. Um, the, 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 the Few times I've written what we call what they call in brass band circles the set piece. So, like at the national finals, that every band will play the same piece. Um, I'm not so concerned about difficulty per se. I mean, it has to reach a certain level to make it um, a piece where you can distinguish between the performances. Um, and in fact, a piece called Talis Variations, I deliberately made it not difficult because I was getting a little disillusioned with um, the way some brass bands were using technique as, a, as an end, end result. Um, so I wrote a piece that was not technically difficult. Um, but if I'm writing a, 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 an own choice piece, a piece for one band to play, then the request from the conductor always is, make it more difficult, always. I need to show my band off. I need to exploit the resources I have in this band. So it's a question of, of, of where it's being used more than anything else. Um, but, but largely, I don't think that there's a huge difference between, I mean, a huge difference in the way I write a piece, except that that technical thing is a, perhaps a, a bigger parameter than it would be writing a, a concert piece for a, for a wind band. So talking about writing a band, uh, a piece for a particular band, um, Year of the Dragon, um, is a piece that is you know, loved all over the world um, and originally written for Brass Band for the Cory Band uh, and then this amazing 
wind band variation or arrangement and a, a second edition of that then as well. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the tell me about that because that was written to showcase one of the finest bands in the world. Um, uh, how did you how did you approach writing writing Year of the Dragon for the Cory Band? Um, it it it's a little different, and they, they didn't want it as a competition piece. This was a piece for a, for their centenary concert. So I was I was not um, as far as I remember. And again, we're going a long one, right? Um, I was not, but I think I particularly um, was making it difficult for the for the sake of having a difficult piece. Um, I remember some of the compositional process, but it, I, that wasn't at that stage. I don't think uh, part of my thinking. And remember, uh, because I didn't grow up in the brass band world, all my, a lot of my knowledge about what the movement was about came from talking to, to players and saying, what, you know, what sort of piece do you like? And what do you like playing? And what's the best range for your instrument? And when you speak to players, they'll say, oh, make it as hard as possible. Um, because they like to show off brass band players generally. <laughs> and then, then um, the complaint is, this is much, much too hard. <laughs> and that's happened to me. That happened to me, happened to me writing, a, writing a test piece for a conductor again, who I will not name. Um, and I wrote the, wrote the piece, and this, this was a, a European home choice test piece. And I, I was writing it and sending, sending bits to him or her. Um, bit by bit, and he was saying, no, it's not hard, that's no, not hard. So I, I made it harder, and he said, that's ridiculously hard. <laughs> <So> <laughs> it's, it's, it's very difficult to try the balance between um, what you want to write as a composer, and if you're writing a commission for one band, it's your duty, I think, to, to write what the conductor is asking for, and the conductor is always asking for something more difficult. Until so it's that's... too difficult. Until it's too difficult. <laughs> Um, so, so my my sort of brass band philosophy grew up not through knowledge of the medium, but by by speaking to players and actors, which which probably was a mistake, or not the best not the best way to to learn about things because they have our own um, own perhaps isolated ideas about how things should should be. Um, I remember once um, at the British Open Championship piece was commissioned and set and one conductor wrote to the band press saying this piece is much too easy uh, when you have a piece that this is easy as a set piece at the British Open the chances are any band can win and so you know it doesn't not the best band is going to win and he won it so I thought that was quite a quite a nice quite a nice comeback uh, yeah, uh, we, we, we have a, a band championship here, which you have judged at uh, in the yeah. past. And uh, I think that's an argument that, that I've made a, a number of times is that, um, you know, sometimes uh, when we only have one or two very, very top bands that are able to compete in that top competition, that maybe uh, lowering that, that level of that piece uh, might, be, might, be a, might be an interesting experiment in that can those top bands still win? Um, you know, by playing a slightly simpler piece of music, technically, uh, but playing it in a way that is um, advanced and, and musical and understanding and compassionate to the music. I, I think there's, there's an argument to be made that uh, simple music um, can actually be a better test of a band's uh, ability, maybe. Absolutely. I mean, the, if you go to one of the top UK competitions or the European, all the bands can play anything. They're, they're, Technically, they are so advanced. What separates them is the, is the slower music, nearly always. I think. And um, I've often reckoned that if you went to the Albert Hall and the test piece was the slow movement of the Moorside Suite, you could tell the band's part very easily. Nothing, not, there's no such thing as too easy. No such thing. Yeah. Well, let me talk to you uh, about um, that Year of the Dragon piece a little bit more then, because it, yeah. it, it moved from being this brass band piece for commissioned specifically for a particular brass band to being a very popular wind band piece. So, so let's maybe use that as a jumping off point to talk about this difference between wind band and brass band. Um, I, I, think, I think fans of your music 
uh, that are either brass band players predominantly or wind band fight about whether you're more brass band composer or or wind band composer. Um, do you do you feel like you write stuff for brass band and then arrange that same piece for wind band, or has that has that changed over the years? Do you write more for with wind band in mind? Or? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, there are, unless it's a very uh, sort of grade grade two or grade three piece. Um, I do very little cross pollination now, and I think it's because um, writing for brass band is is, is 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 quite easy in terms of scoring because you a you know um, how many players there are going to be almost exactly, and b the technique of all the instruments is the same. Um, wind band is much more complex. It has been for me. Um, because of the different techniques of the of different families of instruments, because wind bands are nearly always different sizes, and you don't you don't know whether there are twelve flutes or two flutes, um, it's scoring for wind band. I find has taken me much longer to learn, and therefore, as I reach my, um, I mean, I'm nearly nearly thirty now, as you know. Um, uh, um, I think I've, I think I've got the hang of it in the last few years, and because that has become more specialist, very few of my wind band works would transcribe for brass band, and vice versa. At the at the intermediate to high level, um, it's easy pieces it's, it's much much easier to to transfer. But I'm doing very few in both very few pieces of both genres now. Year of the Dragon seems to be an exception to that, though, at that high level, or at least one of the, because there's, there's probably many exceptions, um, but that seems to be one piece that works incredibly well for wind band. What, what drove you to do the second edition, um, the more, most recent edition of that? Was it just that you had gone through a journey and, and sort of learned the wind band craft a little it, bit more? Exactly that, yeah, exactly okay. that. When, when I... Um... When I wrote Fear of the Dragon, 84, much of the wind band market in the UK was military bands. We, we had a, a directory from Nella Hall. Um, and I think at that time, there were over 100 military bands in the UK, or maybe in England, UK. So the military band market was, was, was big. And when I talk about military band, I'm talking about bands where um, there's no string bass, there's there's no soprano saxophone, then maybe one bassoon, one oboe, limited instrumentation. And that's what that's what I wrote the original arrangement of, of um, Dragonfall. Um, there's no double bass in the original. There's there's it's a very fast score in terms of in terms of Comparing it with the with the American concert band tradition, um, and as as I've got to know that symphonic wind band scene better and more, I felt that the old the old arrangement just didn't fit, and it could be done better. Um, so uh, yeah, I wanted to do something for for a larger band, um, more more sympathetic to woodwind. Um, technique as well because in the original version I just transferred the brass band articulation into wind band this doesn't work on the oboes as you know I, I, so, I have I, a th I, I have a theory on this Philip is that oh, you, did this you did this second edition um, about six months after you came over to conduct Year of the Dragon with the Irish Symphonic Wind Orchestra and I have a theory <laughs> that it was that rehearsal that, that changed her mind when you heard what we were capable of and not capable of not true. Um, <laughs> not true. There, there is actually a specific reason why I did it. I'm not prepared <laughs> to divulge that on a podcast. I can tell you afterwards. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. But but but, but largely, it was hoping you know hoping to get a, a version that was for symphonic wind band rather than military band. Yeah, just that. Uh, before we move on to uh, talking about other things apart from really composition, um, is there a, a piece that you've written over the years that you hope um, 
is a testament to you. To you. If, if you're asking, is there one piece that I'm extremely happy with and that, that, that I feel um, sums up what I'm able to do wind band wise, it would be the Savannah Symphony, Second, Second Symphony, which I've conducted uh, quite a few times. And each time I'm so delighted with the way it worked out. Um, I can't tell you why that particular piece worked out to my satisfaction more than any other, but it's a, it's a piece I would go back to over and over again saying, yeah, that's, that's okay. Okay, well, let's move on a little bit from, from, from composition and talk about a, a few other uh, aspects of, of your work. Um, you travel um, a huge amount, or at least until the pandemic, you travel a huge amount conducting and doing workshops. Um, what's the importance of travel to you in your, in your life? And um, is there anywhere that stands out to you as, a, as just the most you know, important trip or, or destination that you've been to? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it obviously it's important to get a to get a sort of world view of, of wind band movements in you know around the world. Um, I'm doing much much less. In fact, I'm doing none at all because of the pandemic. But also, and this sounds ridiculous, because I bought a dog, and I've, we've spoken about this before. Um, it's just practically very difficult for me to to do that. Um, the trouble is when um, a band invites you over to to do a concert with them. I can't say sorry, I can't come because of my dog. It just just <laughs> doesn't work. Um, but it's the truth. And uh, coming down to day to day practicalities, if I go away for a week, uh, my wife has to take a week off work to. Look after the dog. We, we, we're not happy to put him into kennels or leave him with anyone else. So I, I'm finding it now much easier not to travel, stay at home. My builders might be back. Hang on. No, they're not. Sure. Um, um, so stay at home. Uh, in, in terms of visits I've made that have made a lasting impression, definitely Japan. Um, because of the, the number of professional bands that I have over there, something which is unknown in this country apart from in the services. And it's quite astonishing what they managed to do in terms of keeping a, I mean, there are several, several full-time concert bands, professional, which is you know, something that couldn't happen over here. And, and it, it works over there because of, largely because of the uh, enormous enthusiasm that uh, young players have these things. The, the first time I went to conduct the uh, the Siena Wind Orchestra in Tokyo, um, they they filled a two and a half thousand seater hall in 15 minutes. Tickets sold out in 15, 15 minutes, which I just find astonishing. And I don't know whether it ever happened in, in Ireland. It wouldn't happen in the UK, so is there so, more of an appetite for that um, uh, accessible music, like music that, that you would be known for? Is, is that part of the reason? Well, yeah, without wishing to, to, to seem rude, they, they, they are fairly old-fashioned old in, their, in their taste. And every time I go over there, I have to conduct Orient Express and Jubilee Overture and and I keep trying to say, well, what about this piece I wrote less than 40 years ago? <laughs> um, I don't hear a lot of avant-garde music played over there. Mm. Um, and it might be the same thing. It might be the same thing that, that I um, maintain is that, that players enjoy playing music that is, I wouldn't say easily understandable, but easily accessible. I think, I think it's important if you've got a... a um, a wind band in your school, and these are all extracurricular things in most of the high schools in Japan. It, it's got to be attractive to the players to to turn up and rehearse. And they do lots of rehearsal over there. It's got to be attractive to the players. And playing the odd note here and there, and um, 
making strange noises to your instrument might be fun, but I don't think it's attractive on a long-term basis for, for, for players who spend a lot of time improving their, their, their sound, their lyricality, their technique. I, I, think, I think it comes down to the same thing. Yeah, it seems to be that seems to be reflected in the recordings that you um, um, hear from the Tokyo Kasai and the Siena Wind Orchestra. Um, it yes. seems to be, yeah. it seems to be, uh, there doesn't seem to be as much avant-garde music as you as you, as you say, and it seems to be um, very musician friendly friendly music. Um, tell me a little bit about. Um, I know we talked about your process and, and so on, but because you you write so much i remember picking you up at, at the airport philip and asking you what you were currently working on uh what expecting to to hear about the next big symphony or the next big commission that you were working on and I think you were working on 80 grade one oboe uh sight reading pieces <laughs> yes so yes. you're a busy composer and it's not always <laughs> reflected in the in the wind band repertoire that we all that we all see how do you strike right. the balance, uh, Philip? You know, over the last year and a half, more people have probably found themselves in a similar world to you, which is, you know, self-employed or, or working at home or trying to keep themselves motivated and on schedule. Do you keep yourself on schedule? Do you, 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 do you have a very tight work, working hours or, or, or do you let yourself work whenever um, the, the, the need I've, comes? Yeah, I've got a fa fairly re regular... Um working pattern which ties in with most people's sort of day jobs you know starting at nine o'clock and and uh having a break for lunch and taking the dog out and then doing, doing a bit more um I, having been around for a long time now um I, i'm i'm finding it more attractive now to to start doing different different projects that uses a different part of the creative brain i suppose and I think I think I mentioned we started a series of of flexible band pieces, which again was something I'd never done before, and I I I wasn't that keen on them in terms of uh, the fact that they tend to sound they tend to sound all the same because the instrumentation is, is generally the same. Um, so I thought I'd have a go at that, and, I, and again I found that I was using a part of the brain I hadn't used before, and it was it was an interesting challenge, and and that sort of change of challenge is something I'm looking for now more in the type of piece I write rather than just just continuing writing concert pieces. Maybe it's a solo for trombone in a in a just written a piece for Joe Alessi in. Uh, in, in form of a tango. You know, again, this, this is something something new for me, and I, I'm finding it's a great help to have a thing I'd never done before. I've just written a piece for for wind band and choir. Again, something I've never never done before, and I found the process really really intriguing and motivational to do that, rather than just another five minute overture for brass wind band. How do you motivate yourself outside of music? How do you how do you um, balance that uh, involvement with music and, and thinking about music regularly. Um, are there any hobbies? Are there any passions that you have outside of music that kind of balance that life? Sadly, uh, not not no. <laughs> I mean, it's a bit it's a bit of an all bit of an all consuming thing. Um, my wife is always complaining that I never never talk to her. This is not because. Not because uh, I don't want to. I've always got, this sounds very pretentious, but I've always got something happening here in terms of music. I'm, I'm always singing something to myself. All there's music going through, always a melody, or I've just heard a Brahms symphony and, and I'm, I'm rehearing it again here. Um, so I'm not a very loquacious person, not very good at conversation. Um, and it, it's, it's again. It sounds it sounds pretentious to say because I'm always thinking about music, but that, it's it's always in the back, background somewhere. So to my next question, then, if if you weren't a musician of of some sort, uh, be a composer, trumpet player, um, do you think there was anything else that you would have pursued? Is there where, where do you see yourself today if if it wasn't for music? Um, if you ask me that question 
20 years ago, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known an answer. Um, again, because certainly when you're starting out composing, it is, it is rather all-encompassing. All in, all and, you, you know, you have so much to learn and writing music takes so much time. Um, but now I've, I've, um, I, I've uh, got to a stage where I think I know what I'm doing in terms of composing. Um, I don't have to spend that time in terms of orchestrating, for example, but I know a bit more about it. Um, I, am, I am thinking of other things. I would be an antique dealer, definitely be an antique dealer. I watch every single antiques program on television and I, I can't explain why I like it so much, but I love it. And it's, it's partly to do with uh, the fact that it's something I know very little about and I, I would like to learn. But also, um, when you look back at pieces that were pieces of furniture or clocks or whatever that were built, say in the 19th century, there's so much better than the stuff we do now. So much better. There's so much skill, so much desire to make a piece look beautiful, even though it doesn't doesn't need to. Um, but I find I find the, the the attraction of old stuff very attractive. So I'd, a, I'd be either an antique dealer or auctioneer. I'd love to be an auctioneer. I would love it. See, there seems to be a parallel between our conversation around music um, and and well, all your, my, your all love of music. antiques. Antique. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not exactly what I was saying. <laughs> I went went to a concert once with Peter Graham, and they played Year of the Dragon. And he, he said to me, "It's great they get these old pieces out there." <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, you may be right. You may be maybe something to do with that. That you know that the uh, that something that's based on on real craft and real um, workmanship. Yeah, there may be a connection there. I haven't thought about. It. Hmm. Oh well. We uh, we're coming towards the end of the interview, uh, Philip, and and I I want to talk to you very um, uh, be, be, I, I definitely want to touch on on, on your uh, publishing label uh, Anglo Music, uh, because you're uh, due to celebrate uh, the twentieth anniversary. Although I think that was already passed at this stage. It's just that you haven't had time to celebrate it because of COVID. Um, exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So so. Nowadays, it's it's uh, you find a lot of young composers, particularly in the states, um, are doing a lot of self-publishing, um, because it's become so much easier to do that with the internet and uh, yes, and, and so yes. on. Uh, but but tell me a little bit about Anglo Music and um, um, how it started and um, and and how it's going. Um, it was uh, it started because I wanted to have a little bit more control about the quality of production um, I was a self-taught copyist and in the days when copying was with a pen and ink and um, something I love doing I, I find the layout of music and the appearance of music on the page as a, a very enticing part of the musical process um, so I wanted to have and it sounds awful, control over the way that happened. So starting my own label was a way to do it. In, in, in those days, it, it, we're talking about 2000 now, 20 years ago, um, there wasn't the same facility to self-publish as there is now in terms of the inset. So I had this collaboration with uh, what was then Dehaska and now is Hal Leonard, um, and they, do all my printing, all my recording and everything for me, which is wonderful. And I, um, I'm i left just doing the writing and, and, and deciding what goes into that, goes into the catalogue. So it's, it's, it's quite a nice compromising in those terms. But it's, it, it's nice to be able to put every dot in the right place. It sounds terribly OCD, I know, but um, uh, that's part of the process I really love, making a piece look attractive on the page and 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 clear and precise, and uh, so the conductor hasn't got to worry about 
is that a right, right note or a wrong note or what am I seeing here? Make, to, to make the process as easy as possible for the players, really. Well, it, I mean, it, it works so well. Um, your, your music is printed in, in such a clear manner that sometimes it makes difficult music look at first like it's going to be easy, may I say. <laughs> that, wasn't, that wasn't one of my motives. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder has any musician ever said that to you before that the music looks so clear and 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 simple on the page and then you start playing it and then actually it's just as difficult as some of those really really uh, <laughs> no the, the comment <laughs> that has been made not so much these days but in the other days is that if I can't play it I shouldn't write it which my response was <laughs> To which, which my response was, if I only wrote what I could play, you wouldn't be playing it. <laughs> it would be very simple indeed. Uh, well, what is the what is the plan to mark the, the 20th anniversary uh, of Anglo Music? Is there is there going to be an event of some sort? Um, not an event as such. I think, I think um, that we're, you know, hopefully, if we're going to Midwest, there's going to be something happening there in terms of launch of a, we're producing a, a box set of, I think, four CDs are going to be, um, three of which I've been able to um, nominate my sort of favourite pieces over the last years of Anglo music. And we're having a new CD recorded, in fact, this week in, in, in Holland of Peter's repertoire. So it can be a four, four CD box set produced. And we're launching this new flexible band series um, as, as a sort of 20th anniversary um, event and also um, and I'm not quite sure this was this was Helena's idea that I've written I've written a piece a short short grade three piece to celebrate the anniversary and and that if you buy so many pieces from the Anglo catalogue you get this piece free um, free on top of it as a as a sort of birthday celebration so it's, does that it's include buying the pieces over the last twenty years Philip. Yeah, you've got to buy every piece I wrote, and then you get, you get, this, get this free two-minute fanfare. <laughs> well, Philip, it's been absolutely fantastic to, um, to, to talk to you. And as I said, it, it, when you go searching podcasts or interviews, there's, there's not a huge amount out there. Um, so I really do appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me. And um, uh, if people wanted to find out you know, if they don't already know all about you and all about your music, um, where can they go to find out uh, more about Philip Spark? Well, I have this fantastic new website that was designed <laughs> really? by a great, great friend of mine. <laughs> so, um, and thank you again for that. Uh, and it, it's um, it, it's been much more accessible than my old one, which uh, I didn't get many contacts through and it wasn't particularly interactive. Um, but this new one has worked out very well. I'm getting a lot of contacts through it and people can can log on and hear the new pieces find out about my varied career etc and that's the best way philipspark.com thanks so much philip have a great um have a great year and and hopefully we'll all see you at midwest at the end of the year Keith, thanks very much for the invitation it's been a real pleasure and i hope to see you at midwest thank you so much again for joining me and my guests in the band room this week I'll be back next episode talking to more great guests from around the band world, so head over to wherever you get your podcasts from and make sure you subscribe. If you've enjoyed the episode, maybe even leave us a review and share it with your band buddies. In the meantime, you can stay up to date with me on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter at Global Bandroom and on our website, globalbandroom.com. Until next time, I'll see you back in the band room.